0: You're listening to The 66, a podcast where we go through the books of the Bible one at a time. I'm Andrew Kingsley, and with me is Drew Kaiser. And today we are in what some commentators have called one of the most sanctified passages of the entire Bible, which I thought was an odd term to use. That's a a more sanctified chapter than the rest.
1: Is it set apart from the rest? Yeah, maybe that's it. Meaning there it's a very holy... Chapter
0: right, and it is. This is a chapter I'm sure everyone is familiar with. This is Jesus's prayer uh, called the High Priestly Prayer, also called the Prayer of Unity or the Real Lord's Prayer. Yeah, the I've Real Lord's it, Prayer. I've heard it. Yeah, called
1: everybody refers to the Model Prayer in Matthew six as the Lord's Prayer. Mm. You know, that's how it's understood, and so you know that's the way I remember learning from childhood is. That's not the Lord's Prayer. The Lord's Prayer is in John 17. And that that's an accurate statement. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think we even kind of agree with that sanctified... After you said that, I started thinking about it. And I thought about our conversation. We were talking about uh, how many chapters we're going to do from episode to episode. And we, we said, well, we're going to do 14 through 16 together, which is what we did last episode. And there was even... You know, one time one of us threw out, why don't we put 17 in there as well? Yeah. And we thought, well, even though 17 is not much material, we have to do that one by itself. Right. Which means we may agree with that part about this passage of Scripture being set apart from the rest. I mean, we evidently agree that it's special.
0: Right, because there's, it's just so... I can't think of the right word for this, but to read... Jesus, talking to the Father here, a very candid, heartfelt um, intercession, really, most of it is intercession for his apostles and for those who will believe through his apostles. It's just, you know, I think sometimes you might sit around and wonder, well, what do you think Jesus says to the Father? What would Jesus say to the Father if we could see a conversation well, this is what we have. And it's. We see for the first few verses him talking about uh, giving glory to God and to himself. And then he moves into talking about his apostles and praying for them uh, to be kept safe, to be unified. And then he moves into all of those who will believe through his apostles, which I think definitely applies to everyone in Acts and then even continuing all the way up into now. So. What yeah, we, it
1: is a way to look and see. You know, ask the question: How should I pray? Which is something that a lot of people a lot of people have. You know, they don't know what to say, and is a long prayer necessary? Is a or should we pray short prayers? By the way, this is the longest prayer in the New Testament, right. and in terms of the whole Bible, it's second only to Solomon's uh, dedication to the temple. Um, so, it you know, if you're looking at prayer length look at this, we're probably going to read this in its entirety, and I think it'll be, you could read it from verse 1 to the end of the chapter in you know, less than five minutes. Oh, yeah. So it answers the question, you know, I, I don't think there's much of a case can be made for long prayers. Mm-hmm. And and people point out that Jesus prayed all night prior to appointing the disciples. But I, right. I think that's, I don't know what that was. I think a mm-hmm. lot of that was meditation A lot of that was, you know, intermittent prayers, you know, a prayer here, a prayer there, a lot of thinking, a lot of, you know, I think the term prayer was used loosely there because, and I say that because when I see his prayers, I do not see lengthy prayers. Right. When he taught us to pray, he gave us a few words, you know, Mm -hmm. in the model prayer, so... Let's look at this one, and uh, it divides up really nicely, like you said, um, which is a change from chapters 13 through 16 in the first part of the private ministry of Jesus. Uh, The first part of this prayer is his prayer for himself, verses 1 through 5. Uh, When he had spoken those words that we had talked about in the last episode, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, that I had with you before the world existed. So you have in this amazing loyalty to the Father. You right. see the submission of the Son, and he's he has this sense of finishing a great task prior to his death. Of course the greatest part is yet to come, which he refers to as his being glorified, but um you know, that, that's the first part of the prayer. He's praying for himself. Let's go to verse 6, and what we have in verse 6 and following is Jesus praying for his disciples. And this is a, probably the lengthiest part of the, the prayer. Um, let's look at this. Um, there are four things here and in this prayer for the disciples. And in these four things, he tells us what discipleship means. So let's start in verses 6 through 10. Um, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. "...all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them." So here's the first thing that he tells us about the meaning of discipleship. It's not something that is destined. It's not something that is destined. He says, "...yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word." And he says, "...I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine." That does not mean that God predestines some to be saved and some to be condemned. What it means is God has a destiny plan for all of us, and it is a plan that's devised in eternity. It's not fate. Um, A parent can have dreams for his child, but if the child does not want to fulfill them, they don't come to fruition. And so, um, you know, God can have a dream for a person, but if we don't respond to that dream, we can't be saved, or we can't be an apostle, or we can't be whatever. So... They were destined to be disciples, but that doesn't take away their free will. And the other thing that we learned from this about the meaning of discipleship, I said four things, I really want to pull out just uh, three. But the other thing is that um, discipleship demands obedience. You know, he's talking about how they have kept his word. And so that's a very important part of discipleship. And the last thing is that discipleship is a basic acceptance of the fact that Jesus came from God. Notice verse 8, he says, They've come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you have sent me. I didn't do that very well, Andrew, but you know, there's three things in verses 6 mm-hmm. through 10 that he says about discipleship, that it is mm-hmm. destined, that it demands obedience, and that it is a basic acceptance of the fact that Jesus came from God. At least that's what yeah. we get from You know, this part of the prayer. Now, I want to continue his words on behalf of his disciples. And he makes several petitions in verses 11 through 19 on their behalf. First of all, he prays for them to be delivered from the enmity of the world. Um, I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. He says, "While I was with them, I kept them in Your name, which You have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the Scripture may be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have My joy fulfilled in themselves. I've given you them, Your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So he's very concerned about his leaving them." and the evil one taking advantage of that. So he's praying for them not to be delivered out of the world, but to be delivered from the enmity of the world. And then secondly, and you may have picked up on this from verse 11, he prayed for them to be united. And we're going to see this again for all disciples in verse 21, but in verse 11 of the hand-picked apostles, he says that he wants them to be one even as we are one. Thirdly, he makes a petition for their joy, and we read that as well from verse 13. These things I speak in the world that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. And then finally, he prays for their sanctification. Um, He says in verse 17, Sanctify them in the truth, your word is truth. So he makes all of these appeals to the Lord on their behalf. He wants them to be taken care of while he is away. And uh, it's, he doesn't take it lightly that he's going to die and rise again and then soon thereafter ascend into heaven. And uh, so he prays for them. But lastly, he prays for all believers. this includes you and me. right. Uh, look at verse uh, 20. "I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That's disciples in perpetuation. And we're so, reading
0: the words of one of them, or we're reading the words of one of these apostles right now. So I right, think that's yeah, interesting. A good point. I mean, it's the words of Jesus, obviously, but written in this gospel, written by John. So yes. all of us are taught still by the apostles, which mm-hmm. I think is really cool.
1: We believe in um, believe through their word. Yeah, right. that's exactly. And John makes a point in verse 30 and 31 of chapter 20 that that's why he wrote this whole thing, is so yeah. that we would believe. And by believing, have life through him. Mm-hmm. Um, so he makes three basic requests on our behalf. Uh, first of all, verse 21, that all of us would be one. Uh, that they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. And that gets me to the second request. He makes a request that the world may believe uh, and their belief right. would come through the unity of the disciples. And here's where we have a major problem that I'm sure we're going to be talking about a lot in this episode. Right. Division among Christianity. You know, when Christians are divided, they tell the world that Jesus isn't the real thing. And when they're united, they say the opposite. Correct. And that's, that's what Jesus is saying. Um, the final request that he makes on their behalf is that the disciples would be with Christ where he is. And he says this in verse 24, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. The prayer ends, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them." the reasons that we wanted to do John 17 by itself is because it does have some very deep stuff regarding the divinity of Christ, the nature of God, the question of whether God is Trinitarian, meaning three persons in one, or Unitarian, meaning just one person in one essence. Uh, so a lot of those questions are settled in John 17 because... Of what we said before, this is a conversation between two persons within the Godhead, the Son and the Father, and uh, it's revealed to us by the Spirit. So we've got you know this interesting uh, relationship between the members of the Godhead in this chapter of Scripture. Uh, so I want to start with verse five of John seventeen and pull two things out of that. We'll start with the okay. easiest. I think, and then we'll go to the, the more difficult. To me, you know, it's very plain that he is speaking of his pre-existence, which we've already seen in John. But he says, right. you know, that he had glory before the world existed. Now, I don't know how you read that any other way, but that Jesus, the human being praying this prayer on from earth to the Father, just has declared that he existed before the world existed, mm-hmm. which is something John has already said. But this is the first time I believe that we've heard it from Jesus' lips right. in John. Right. You know. But of course, we remember the prologue to the Gospel. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. In the beginning, there is meant to echo the very first words of Genesis: "In the beginning." God created the heavens and the earth. Right. Uh, verse three all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Mm-hmm. We've we've discussed all of that. But you know, John begins with the pre existence of Christ. In other words, he existed before the world. But then you have Jesus saying that as much in John seventeen, verse five. Um and all he says there is that I existed before the world existed, but From John 1, you get that he was God's agent in creation.
0: Right. And you get that. And, you know, all through, we were just talking about some other places in the New Testament, uh, Hebrews chapter 1 uh, echoes the same thing. It says that he was there at the foundation of the earth. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 10, You, Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain they all wear out like a garment Um, so we have here talking about Christ in the context you were there when the earth was laid Uh, you were Mm -hmm. there from the beginning as we see here Colossians chapter 2 says the same thing Um,
1: chapter 1
0: right oh yeah chapter 1 sorry I was thinking Philippians 2 Colossians chapter 1 says the same sort of thing Um, starting in verse 15 he is the image of the invisible God the firstborn of all creation. By him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, thrones or dominions, rulers, or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So, so Jesus. By him, there. through
1: him, for him. Yes. You know, the the by him and through him have been distinguished as, you know, he made all things and then all things are sustained mm-hmm. through him. Which is also in Hebrews 1. Right. Um, he sustains the universe by the word of his power, I think is verse 3. But then for him is amazing to read about, too, because it's like, you know, he that kind of gets to maybe the Greek sense of Lagos. Mm-hmm. You know, he is the word. Yeah. He is the reason for the universe, the explanation, of the rationale behind the universe. Yeah. Um, That gets pretty deep, but Jesus just kind of throws it out there, you know, in the prayer. Yeah, I was, you know, before the world existed, Mm -hmm. I was with you.
0: Yeah. Uh, Now. It's a lot for us to take in in just a few words, for sure.
1: Now, he answers a big question introduced by Philippians 2. Right. Uh, Mm -hmm. So, I think before I get to the answer, we should go to the question... Yeah, I think I kinda you, you, jumped ahead of Right. No you didn't. Okay. I I didn't sense that. Okay. You know. You're doing you're doing fine, man. <laughs> okay.
0: Uh, I feel like but I jumped ahead of myself. Why don't you read Just the Colossians.
1: Philippians you know uh,
0: this is where starting in chapter two of Philippians, Paul is encouraging the Philippians to be humble, wants them to be of the same mind and look out for one another's interests, and then he gets to verse five and says, Have this among yourselves which is yours in Christ Jesus so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. And the All right. question... So, oh, no, so was
1: that an Andrew translation? Because
0: oh, no, he no, said emptied himself.
1: Something? No, no. It is emptied... Yeah, so, emptied is in Philippians. But you're reading from the ESV, right? Right. Okay, so I have the, that's interesting. That's one of the things the ESV changed, because... I, I have the update from like 2007, and you probably have the original 2001 edition, yeah. which is actually more accurate, because mm-hmm. that's a literal translation that you read in the New American Standard Bible. He emptied himself when he came to earth. Right. He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be held mm-hmm. on to, but he emptied himself when he came down to the earth. And mm-hmm. uh, my translation says he made himself nothing, which doesn't really have any firm meaning to me. Seems yeah. that they've glossed over it in the update, which I don't like uh, because I've looked into the original language as have you, and that's yeah. exactly what it means. It means he like poured himself out. Yeah, that's you know that's the meaning of the passage. Right. So go. What's the question there? The question think, is,
0: what did he empty himself of? Right.
1: Right. So you know if you're just reading that alongside of. Though he was in the form of God or equal to God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. You read that he emptied himself alongside of that. What are people naturally going to assume? That he emptied himself of his um, deity, right? Right. I mean, that's what a lot of people think that means. Mm -hmm. But then you run into problems, you know, in John and all over the place. When he's saying, you know, before Abraham was, I am. And we've already talked about how many times he's claiming to be God. Right. Not just come from God, but that he is God. So many times that is stated. We don't need to go back over that again. You can listen to previous episodes. Right. Um, I think this is
0: one of the most difficult things for some people to wrestle with is how was Jesus fully divine and... Fully human at the same time. And and for good reason. Because what we're talking about here is something infinite being finite. You know, something with no end being capable of having an
1: end. Having human limitations. Yeah. Such as, such as death. Uh,
0: yeah, exactly. Injury, death, hunger, sadness, all these kinds of things that you see Jesus uh, really prone to during his life. It's not like he was you know, Superman, Mm -hmm. living here and nothing bothered him. And, you know, and then when he died on the cross, it looked bad, but he was really fine because he's deity. Uh, There's some balance that he has there. He's fully God and he's fully man. Um, And in Philippians, when it says, he didn't count equality with God a thing to be grasped. that word for grasped is to take a hold of something and to really cling to it and hang on to it and not let go of it. And I think that there's, certainly when Jesus is on the cross, and and we'll get to this, um, but I don't think we can fully understand the weight of what Jesus did for us if we don't stop to talk about what we're talking about now. Verse 5 of chapter 17 here is what makes the cross life-changing, to me anyway. It's what makes it life-changing because Christ had, you know, the fullness of God we read in Colossians chapter 2. He's filled with all the fullness of God. He's there before creation. And then he, Philippians, or Colossians 1, I'm sorry, Colossians chapter 1. But then when you get to Philippians 2, he empties himself and takes the form of a servant. He allows himself to be vulnerable. He allows himself to be capable, uh, or subject, I guess rather, to death. And he's going to ultimately win over death. And he says, no one takes my life, but I lay it down. And to me, we can see what's going on here wrapped up in that statement. He lays down his life. Even though he could have kept it, he could not have allowed anyone to take his life from him, Jesus certainly had a power over death, but he laid his life down anyway, and then he picked it right back up. But he laid it down, and so here we have God, we have Jesus saying to the Father, "As I was in your presence with glory uh, before the world even existed, so in in all of this, that's the glory that I'm that I'm asking for you uh, from you anyway to have back."
1: Mm-hmm. That's the glory I want yeah, to have. So back. that's what he lost. Because I—that's what he emptied himself of. Right. Was was his glory? Now, of all the words in the Bible, glory may be for me personally the hardest one to define. You know what in yeah. the world is that? Because it's used very abstractly. I mean, what it—what is, is that? You know, I've I've struggled with that for a long time. I, I you know you look it up in the lexicon or whatever, and it'll say. A shining a brilliance. Yeah, like something like that. Mm-hmm. It, the literal meaning does not help you at all understand what Jesus gave. He gave up his brilliance. Yeah. Okay. You know, like intellectual brilliance, actual brilliance.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, we often think about the transfiguration as a as a moment of glory, a vision of glory. Yeah. A vision of what he had lost. And that's somewhat helpful, but what is that? Other than just something visible, what is it? And um, the best definition that, that I've ever found of what glory is with regard to God is a shining forth of His holiness. So it's like a manifestation thing. He, he didn't lose His holiness, but He lost the shining forth of His holiness, and taking on this form, and that Philippians stresses that the form of God versus the form of a human, right. a servant, a human, humbled to the point of death, taking on the form of a crucified criminal, yeah. you know, that's the form that he took on. So, So what he lost was this brilliant, shining forth of his holiness that everybody could see, and, you know wrapped himself up in human flesh, which masked the glory, and he lost that immediate... I mean, if he showed himself as he truly was, nobody would have crucified him. Nobody would have dared question him or mocked him or spat upon him. Right. They would have immediately honored him. Or they
0: would have immediately died. Like, I'm thinking back to... Well, yeah, yeah, that's a good Old point. Testament yeah. with Moses. You know, he wanted to see God... He said, you can see me after my
1: glory passes by. You can look, but you can't look. And from you know, a human point of view, that would be something to be enjoyed. Yeah. I mean, maybe I'm revealing something about myself Easy. here, but, you know, I, I don't feel the need for that now. But if I were in Jesus's position, mm-hmm. you know, being mocked and disregarded and, you know, questioned and criticized constantly, even by my own family, yeah. wouldn't it be great to just really let loose the glory and show them who I am shine yeah. forth the true nature of myself and just let them weather up and die right there in front of me you know uh, yeah. or whatever happens to them you know I'm sure it's, it's not like
0: prove them wrong right there in the moment yeah but he but
1: he chose and, and this is all voluntary he chose to empty himself of that Because he didn't want us to die. He wanted us to live. And in order for us to live, he had to empty himself so that he could die in an inglorious, humiliating fashion.
0: Right. Because there's nothing glorious from the, you think, from the apostles' point of view. And for now, the cross is, I mean, it's glorious for us now, looking back at it. Uh, Because, I mean, you see people wearing it around their neck, got it on their cars and everything. The cross now... Is a symbol, uh, certainly, of the sacrifice Jesus made, but also of the tremendous hope that we have because of the cross. So there right. is some, there is some glory, right? right. Up in the and cross that's the an interesting thing. That's the interesting
1: but. thing. It's like glory meets humility at the cross. And yeah, because the cross is a shining forth of the holiness of God. It also, is.
0: yeah, it is for us now, but for John, when it's happening, yeah, it's not. I mean, death on the cross is not glorious at all. In the eyes at the time of its occurrence, but
1: it was. It didn't appear to be.
0: Right, that's my point. Okay. Yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah, that's that's the point I'm trying to make. Yeah. It it is. We can, and the apostles definitely saw that retrospectively. Right. But at the time, for them, and I think you know uh, when Paul mentions that in Philippians, humble to the point of death, even death on a cross. Yeah. So a cursed way to die. You know, cursed is anyone who hangs Mm. on a tree. Yeah, that's... You know, it's not a glorious way to go out, like going out, like maybe some Jewish war hero that goes into battle, and, you know, like all these movies you see or whatever, dying with the glory of sacrificing your life for other people by going in battle and, you know, all mm. this stuff. No, he is tried. He is meek throughout the whole trial, you know, our concept of a hero now is during the trial if you haven't done anything wrong, you stand up and you say, I haven't done anything wrong. You da, 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 can't da.
1: handle the truth.
0: Yeah. All this kind of stuff, like you, you're not gonna, you know, do this to me and da da, da, da. <laughs> But Jesus
1: I love the voice. Yeah. Jesus just It's your righteous indignation voice. Yeah, that's my righteous <laughs>
0: righteous indignation voice. But Jesus, you know, he he takes it for us. And so that's what makes the, co- the cross glorious now. But certainly, viewing it for the apostles and for everyone else, it was not a, like the glorious way to go out. But now, but that was the only way that
1: he could substitute himself for us, right. is to empty himself of the glory, so that he could die. So that in his, but then in his death, if glory is a shining forth of God's holiness, in his death. There was actual glory. Right. So in his humility, he was glorified. Yeah, that's it's, exactly what Philippians says.
0: It says, since he had humbled himself, God has given him a name. Yeah, above, um, which is above every name. Right. So the humility is what causes the glory. I mean, it's it, it
1: is, it's, it's mind-blowing. It really yeah. is. Um, but it's the heart of the gospel exactly in in this prayer and so you can see why you know we wanted to handle this chapter by itself and we're not even finished yet i mean yeah. let's let's move on to the love okay so again let's introduce the problem with another passage and find the answer in the prayer and this the problem is introduced in this case in 1 john chapter 4 verse 8 which is everybody knows this verse god is love and everybody loves that idea yeah. But you have to think about that for a long time to realize what John is saying. He's not saying God is equal to love and that love and God are the same thing, because then we'd just be as bound to worship love as we are to worship God. And right. love is not God, but God is love. I mean, so he's not saying that God and love are exact equals. He's not saying love is a God. Uh, uh-huh. What he's saying is love is an essential part of God's nature. Right. If you if you Ever have found a time in the historical timeline of God or before history in which God was not loved, then he he would cease to be God because God God is essentially loving. All right, fine. Everybody likes that. But here's the problem. Love seeks an object. Love is relational by definition, Mm -hmm. which means one person by himself cannot love. But there was a time when the world wasn't here. And God was alone in eternity. I mean, that has to be the case if everything except for God has been created. Okay, and so another thing is some people say, well, the reason the world was created was so God could have something to love. There's some people, some preachers that I really respect, some thinkers that I really respect that say that. I've heard him say that, and uh, mm-hmm. I don't think that's true because that negates First John four eight. If God had to create the world in order to love something, then He is not love, infinitely loving, because love right. is relational. That would predate. That would mean there was a time before the world in which there was no relationship. All right, so you get the problem. How is God love if there was a time when there was only God and love is relational? That's the problem. Mm-hmm. Set up by First John 4, 8. three words, but very profound. Mm-hmm. Typical John. Well, he has already answered that in John 17:24, at the end of which he says, um, he says, "You loved me, speaking to the Father, you loved me before the foundation of the world." Right? So God is by nature, relational. Which is the way, the more scientific way or technical way that we word it is that God is a trinity. Mm -hmm. Three persons in one divine essence, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It's one essence made up of three persons. Each person is essentially a part of that. And there's love before the world was created in all of eternity... Love was taking place between these three persons as Jesus refers as Jesus says here in verse 24 yeah so just as we
0: mentioned you know we've already set up that Jesus was there before the creation of the world obviously the love was existing between uh, between Jesus and the Father then so yeah I think that's definitely the answer to the, the problem you set up in First John chapter 4
1: yeah so and I think this is the only place where this is this clear. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are other passages, of course, to talk about the love of Jesus for the Father and vice versa, but in terms of it occurring before the world existed before he was born to Mary in his preexistent state, I mean, we just don't get to look into that part of the universe or. That part outside the universe. We just don't get to look at that Mm -hmm. too much. And John is the only gospel writer, for example, who even talks about this part of Jesus' life. Yeah. And um, I don't... You know, there are a few mentions in Revelation, which again comes from John. Mm -hmm. You know, he's the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. In other words, there was... You know, and Paul talks about the eternal purpose that God had in Jesus Christ. So there's, you know, references in Paul and in John to this pre-existent state, but there's not a whole lot said about it beyond the idea that God had a plan all along, and that God created the world, and so it's a very interesting glimpse into this stage of eternity. Mm-hmm.
0: And I think there's, I've got another thing. Kind of shift gears if you're, yeah, if we sure okay if we've got time real quick. Um, something about the things that Jesus says about the apostles because in our last episode we talked a little bit about how the apostles will get it but then they don't really get it and we've seen that as a theme throughout the apostles' lives and it will even continue in the next few chapters until Jesus is raised from the dead and they see him and they know uh, that he is actually raised from the dead. I think it's interesting Um. A few of these things that Jesus says about them, he says. Uh, let's see here. Uh, well, I just had it, and I've lost it. He says a few times that they know that he is from God. They believe that um, that he has been sent from directly from the Father. Here in verse 25, the verse right after the one we just discussed, Oh, righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I have made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known. So there's to some degree that the apostles do know that Jesus has come from God. Now, they might not understand all the ins and outs and and what that means. In verse 8, again, this is what I was looking for. Verse 8, For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. So they have received the words that Jesus has taught. They're taking them in, uh, all except, obviously, the son of destruction, as Jesus calls him. Mm
1: -hmm. But
0: they have received the words, and they know in truth that he has come from the Father. So maybe we're... I don't know. I think maybe in some of these talks that we've had, I haven't given the apostles enough credit, I guess. But at the same time, they still have not reached uh, the fullest level of understanding. Uh, But they're getting there. Yeah, they understand enough for Jesus to speaking directly to the Father to say, they know, keep them safe, keep Mm -hmm. them from evil or from the evil one, whatever your translation says, Mm -hmm. keep them from evil because they know and, and as we learned that's... last
1: episode the rest of the gaps are going to be filled in by the spirit right another comforter right who will come alongside which is the word comforter comes from Paraclete mm-hmm. come to come alongside of them and help them in their preaching and teaching of the truth
0: right. What does John 17 teach us about our prayer life today? And what can we take out of this to apply to later today or tonight or whatever time of day you might be listening to this? When you say your prayer, will this affect the way you pray? How so? What things in here can we see that will help us in our prayer life?
1: Um, well, we've already mentioned one thing, and that is while it is a very eloquent prayer, the greatest prayer in the Bible is a brief prayer. Right. So, you know, I think a lot of people feel their prayers are inadequate simply because they're not long enough. I don't know what to say, but they do know what to say. They're just worried about saying a lot, or they're worried about saying something beautifully or eloquently. Just, you know, you can can talk to God as your father... And you don't have to, you know, it's just between you and him, and it doesn't have to be a big, long sermon for print. It's not supposed to be a sermon. Yeah. You know, he's not preaching. He's not laying, we pulled some principles out, some very deep theological things. Mm -hmm. But they're just mentioned incidentally here. It's not mentioned as, and I think if, you know, some of my brethren were doing this prayer, they would say, you know, Glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Uh, you know, Lord, that at one time it was just you and me, yeah, and not the world. I created the world. I am the creator. Yeah, and it is wrong to say that I am not the creator. Yeah. Uh, you know, and just going on and on. Just kinda offering the I am glorif I am the glorious one and nobody else is you know, he just says it and moves on.
0: And here's something that I think's interesting that I didn't think of till now, so sorry for not giving you a heads up on this.
1: It's okay. You don't have to run everything by me.
0: I'll tell you what I mean, I'm thinking of what a lot of folks will do, and this is what I do that when my prayers get super long, this is why. <laughs> Here is, Jesus says, I'm praying for the ones that you gave me, that you'll keep them from the evil one. We do, and I'm sure Jesus did this, I would just assume. I could definitely be wrong. But what we don't see is, I pray for John, and John is dealing with this and this and this. He doesn't understand this and this. Yeah, Peter, Peter's doing pretty good, but he just doesn't understand all this. Be with Peter. And you know he does, We don't see individual.
1: And I, and I'm he not broke saying, his leg last Tuesday. He yeah. Pray that surgery goes well.
0: And I'm not saying that it's wrong that we don't need to pray for people individually because I think we definitely do. And Jesus. But scared. you're not
1: saying also that it's wrong to do a blanket statement. Also,
0: right? Like, take for example, if I'm sitting in my office and I block out a half hour to pray for the youth group. And, you know, I think it is great, and I think every minister should should practice individually praying for, you know, the people that they are, uh, that they're growing with, really. You know, they're helping them to grow, and then in return it's helping, uh, you know, the minister to grow as well, obviously. But I think it's great, you know, to sit down and say, well, I'm praying for so-and-so because they're dealing with this, and then so-and-so for this. Kind of like what I was just saying. But then at the same time, you know, I think so many times we feel guilty if we don't stop and, by name and individual case and, you know, down to every last detail, pray for all these things. I think it's healthy to do so. But at the same time, I don't think we necessarily feel guilty if we get up and say, I pray for all of the youth group that you can keep them from evil, that they can follow your word similar to some of these things that Jesus prays for his apostles for, but, you know, we we are praying for each other. And I think that's, you know, I I think there is some power in individually praying for people. Um, We see that in James, praying for the one who's sick.
1: Um, Well, and uh, he told Peter in Luke 22 that he'd prayed for him, that his faith would not fail. Yeah. Um, You know, so he... You know, he did, but in the examples that we have, we don't have any of these lists that we right. hear in public prayer so often. Right. You don't have to do that. You can say, be with everybody on the prayer list and move on. Right. I mean, uh, I you mean, can... You know, it doesn't have to be a marathon prayer.
0: Right. And I'm uh, not necessarily saying that marathon prayers are are bad. There's I...
1: time and a place for them. Exactly. I'm not sure the public assembly is the place for them.
0: There's definitely a time and a place for them, and That's more I would personal. agree with you that...
1: I mean, look, here. here's one thing about those kind of prayers. If you were to get up and to give a list, it would be your list, even if it was the bulletin list. It would be an arbitrary list of people that the congregation felt as a whole that it could share or it thought of to share. And we all know that some of the people on the prayer list are just like, you know, they've been on their that maybe they should have been taken off they've been on there a long time or uh, somebody just on a whim threw their hand up and threw that name out and there's like somebody else in the church who's really hurting who's keeping that private or there's somebody else who has a relative at the brink of death but did not disclose that to get it on the prayer list so what it is, it's an arbitrary list you're not going to list everybody who really needs prayer in that prayer, you can't you can't mm-hmm. physically do it. There's not enough time to do it. You just can't do it. So mm-hmm. keep that in mind. You know uh, this completest mentality of I've got to name everybody on this official prayer list is just not the right attitude. I mean, mm-hmm. it's almost like you you get more in Jesus' way of doing thing, things. Like I'm praying for my disciples, and I'm praying for those who believe. Through their word. And we're we're spending way too much time on this one point, but I think, you know, a lot of people are confused about how much to say and what should be said and what gets covered and you know, Jesus says in Matthew six, your father knows what you need before you ask. Yeah. So it's not about the list.
0: I think it has something to say with the focus of what you're praying for and why you're praying. Mm Jesus' focus and the reason obviously you know just like you, you said in the first section with the with the organization of the chapter those are the things he's praying for himself his apostles everyone else is going to believe through mm-hmm. his apostles yeah and in each section he has you know he he has these things that he wants to convey to God about them keep them safe hey they are yours just you know you gave them to me they're mine they're yours sanctify them set them apart and then he moves on and praise you know, also praise for unity. Then he moves on, and I think it's I, I don't know, I think it's interesting that um
1: something something else that I pick up from this is that prayer is more about relationship than anything else. I think maybe that's what I'm trying to say. Because look at you know, he says, Father, the hour has come, glorify your son and and he taught us to pray in Matthew six, our Father who is in heaven. Mm hmm. You know, so many times, and I'm not saying this—it's wrong to say "Dear God," or uh, what's what's some other ways, "Our Lord." You know, yeah. you know, referring to God as God or Lord is fine. You know, it's not wrong. But wouldn't you rather use "Father"? I mean, it's just you know to think of God as our Father, and to pray to Him that way speaks of just this wonderful relationship that we have. That Mm-hmm. is made possible through Jesus Christ. And so that's you know, what is highlighted here is he is relating to God. He's growing closer to God. He's getting strengthened by God through this process. He's not just working down the list of things that need to be said. Right. Treating prayer as a magical incantation or a spell that, you know, if I say it, then it's gonna happen. You know, it's it's not treated that way. Right. Now
0: it's really truly asking God to do something. I mean, that's what Jesus is doing here. He's asking God to return to him the glory he had, asking God to be with those 12, to um, sanctify them, and then also for us, that we can be unified, which I think that leads us into the next thing that we want to talk about, right? Or is there other... Oh well,
1: yeah. I've got a lot of short short points, you know, for these practical applications that I'll throw in quickly because we're we're running out of time here. But um, you know, before we get to the unity, that's actually my last one. Okay. Um, just going in order of the prayer. the First thing that I come to is that eternal life is basically a relationship with God. Because he says in verse 3, This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus whom you have sent. And knowledge, as we have learned, is not just intellectual, but biblically speaking, knowing God has to do with being, being in a relationship with him. Yeah. You know, it's a, in the Old Testament, it's a euphemism for a sexual relationship. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Adam knew his wife and they bore a son, they named him Seth. You know, we mm-hmm. we know all about that usage of the term. And here it's it has to do with, you know, ha- having a relationship with God. And, you know, one of, uh, a very popular author has written that the Bible never talks about having a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. What about John 17, 3? That they may yeah. know God and... Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. That's a relationship with Jesus Christ.
0: And what about verse 21? Uh, That they all may be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they may also be in us. Yeah, (laughs) that's
1: exactly right. Verse 23. Now, does that involve faith and repentance and confession and baptism and faithfulness? Yes, it does involve Mm. that. And so, um, you know, does it involve studying the Bible and... And having intellectual knowledge, of course it does, but what right. saves you is being is having that wedge of sin that has been between you and God removed through the blood of Jesus Christ, right when he paid the price for your your sins and and brought you into a relationship with God. that's what saves you. okay, let's move on to the second one. Well, whatever, however we're counting because prayer was the first one, yeah, the next one. Um, This is a very important one. We are to be in the world, but not of the world. Right. That's verse 15. I do not ask you, ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I'm not of the world. That's a very important distinction to make. Because I think some people believe we're not of the world, and we're not supposed to be in the world. And, you know, that smothers our evangelistic mission right. if we have that attitude of withdrawal from society. We cannot withdraw ourselves from society. We cannot be a part of society either. We cannot lose our distinctiveness, our holiness. But at the same time, we must mingle with the world. We have to rub shoulders with non-Christians. So that we can share the good news because they're lost and they need the Saviour like we needed the Saviour before we were Christians. Yeah, you can't
0: be a light to the nations if nobody can see you.
1: That's exactly right. Light is no good if it's under a, a bushel. bushel. <laughs> yeah. You know, okay. Ready GPS to go on to the next us one? That much. That's right. Uh, next lesson. We are sanctified by the word. Uh, verse seventeen, sanctify them in the truth. Truth is what sanctifies us. Now, are we sanctified by the Spirit? Yes. you know, Numerous passages tell us we're sanctified by the Spirit. Uh, but I think 2 Thessalonians uh, 2, 13, and 14 kind of ties all of this together for us. Showing the relationship between the Spirit and the Word, or the Spirit and truth. If I could just get over to it. Man. Um, 2 Thessalonians... 2, I'm sorry, 2 Thessalonians 2, 13, um, God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. So the Spirit sanctifies us using the instrument of truth, which He revealed mm-hmm. um, to the inspired writers who wrote it down in the Bible, which is the next point. The Word, we're sanctified by truth. The Word is truth. That's also verse 17. Thy word is truth. So truth is found in God's word. Uh, And then the last one is the one that you read, mentioned. Very important lesson, verse 21. Jesus' prayer for unity. uh, He says that they all may be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Jesus desires the church to be unified, and that is not what we have today. You know, denominationalism is not God's plan for the church. Last episode, you talked about this theory of the hallway with rooms, and that's how a lot of people have rationalized the sin of denominationalism. It's sinful, you know, and, and I know that because of the way that Jesus defines unity, he doesn't define it as a hall with rooms or you know, an ocean that has many tributaries, but he defines it as being one. Yeah. He's not saying, you know, I want all the churches, all the different denominations to be one. He's saying, I want all the disciples to be one. Right. Just like we read in John 15 about the branches on the Isn't vine. Um, in John 17, now we're reading about the oneness of the body. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's no way that you can reconcile denominationalism with that vision that Jesus has for the church. Correct, and you
0: see, well, I mean, what he says, he says, so that everybody, or so that the world may believe that you have sent me. What one of people's biggest problems with coming to Christianity is, well, God's not the author of confusion, according to the Bible. And look, you have all these different branches of Christianity. You have all these different denominations of Christianity.
1: Yeah, or on another level, on a on a more innocuous level, I want to be a Christian but I don't know where to start. Do yeah. I, you know, I'm interested in Jesus Christ, do I go to the Catholic Church or do I go to the Methodist Church? Do I go to this Baptist Church? Do I go to this big evangelical Protestant church? Uh, do I go to the Greek Orthodox Church and Mormons, you know, do do I visit them and see what they're talking about? Where do I start if I'm just somebody who you know has slowly come to a belief in the christian the god of the bible mm-hmm. you know do, where do i go you know you go from that confusion to the skepticism that is natural that you refer to it, you know how can there be a god when his people can't seem to agree on anything right you know not that's not even talking about the strife and jealousy and contention that exists within congregations we're yeah. just talking about denominationalism, but this verse also speaks to that problem as well.
0: Yeah. So how do we? I guess for us, and I don't know if this is the avenue to where we can find an answer for this question. Certainly, because we're almost out of time. We have two or three minutes left. Yeah. Right, well, I mean, what do we do about that? I mean, I think we all recognize that we should not be divided. But how do we go about promoting that kind of unity?
1: Well, there's only one thing that all Christians agree on and that's the word of God yeah. so you start with what we agree on and you decide we're going to follow this no matter what and that's the only possible solution for unity Yeah. unless you choose ecumenism which is uh, the idea that we have unity and diversity which is the hall with many rooms idea Yeah. but Jesus pretty much destroys that in his vision for one, one people Yeah. Uh, No, not several rooms.
0: I don't think either one of us would shy away from saying there's unity and diversity, but not, I mean, not on the level that we're talking about with denominationalism. Well, (laughs) not. Because then we lose. Yeah, like
1: maybe racial diversity or cultural diversity. Yeah, yeah, I'm thinking of. Diversity of opinion wouldn't matter. I'm thinking of of 1
0: Corinthians 12 when I say that. Yeah, diversity of
1: function, diversity of talent, diversity of gifts. Right. But not diversity of beliefs, you know. Yes. Um, fundamental ideas about who God is. And like I said, there are, in, in Christendom, there are Trinitarians and Unitarians. There are people that believe that there are three persons and one God, and there are people that believe that God is just one person. Mm-hmm. There are people that believe in Christendom that, you know, Jesus is God, and there are people that don't believe Jesus is God. Yeah. And you know and then there are myriad other disagreements yeah but that's pro- that's a big one you know right there
0: mm-hmm. the
1: nature of god yeah that's about who we're worshiping
0: that's no longer parts of the body paul uses the hand, the eye and the foot that's no longer like okay well us as this church are the eye and then you as that other denomination you are the hand and Uh, I mean, it's that. Those are two whole separate bodies Mm -hmm. that you're talking about there. Those are not
1: right. That's that's different bodies. Right.
0: It's those are off of those are different vines, not different branches off the same. Yeah. yeah. Those are totally different vines.
1: Uh, Well, that's all our time. We, as always, really appreciate you joining us. Uh, We are. Transitioning next time into the passion ministry of Jesus. Probably the part of the book of John that you are most interested in. So I encourage you to keep listening. Put a word out. Spread the word about the podcast. Let people know what we're doing. Uh, Tell them they can go to the66.net and start at any book of the Bible they choose that we have recorded so far. I mean, yeah. Uh, we need to go count and see how many we've got so far, but uh, we're we're still at the beginning of this project. Right, but we're making progress. We're making headway, and uh, if you have time, leave us a review or rate us on iTunes. We would really appreciate that. We're trying to get up in the standings, and uh, you know, follow us on Twitter at the sixty six podcast. Uh, next time we get into the passion ministry of Jesus Christ.